We're in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4, and we are talking about Rehoboam's folly, his foolishness, and we're talking about the fool of a wise man. The fool of a wise man. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and God, your word is a lamp and light to us, and it leads us and it guides us. And so, Father, I pray you'd apply truths to us tonight, reveal things in our hearts, God, and Lord, mold us and shape us into your word, into your image. And God, I pray you would do things, Father, not only in us, but in this community, and speak things tonight prophetically over our church and over this community that would shut out the darkness, O God, and build up a kingdom of light that cannot be destroyed by the power of the Holy Spirit in this community and around the world. In Jesus' name, somebody said... Amen. So here we are. I'm just going to kind of tell you the story, and we'll follow with me when I, I'll read a verse or two. But uh, Solomon's great wealth and his great time of peace had la- led the nation of Israel to apathy and apostasy. That's the idolatry, the falling away. And his compromise by taking some foreign wives and building some idols allowed the kingdom of Israel to slowly begin to weaken in his later years. And Solomon faced problems from the north, the south, and even within. And eventually Solomon died. And God had prophesied to Solomon that the kingdom would be taken away from his son, but not all of it, that he would leave one portion still remaining for David's sake. So Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam, his son, reigns in his place at 41 years old. So he's not that young, but he's a young man comparative. And Rehoboam is going to a place called Shechem. That's where we're going to kind of zoom in in on here. And he's going to be made king. And now hearing that Solomon has died, this guy named Jeroboam. Everybody say Jeroboam. And then we've got another guy over here called Rehoboam. Some people say Rehoboam, but we're going to say Rehoboam. And the best way to understand who's who here is Rehoboam R. Received the kingdom from his father. Okay? Think of it that way. Rehoboam received. Rehoboam received the kingdom. Okay? Rehoboam received the kingdom from his father. And then this guy, Jeroboam, has now just showed back up. Jeroboam is a guy that worked for Solomon, leading the forced labor of the Israelites to build the temple and the king's palace and the Milo and all some other buildings around the area. Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam is now the king, but Jeroboam, Jeroboam has just showed up. And Jeroboam had received a prophecy that he would take the kingdom from Solomon's son. But Solomon heard this. Jeroboam got a little prideful, a little greedy, and he started a revolt, and Solomon chased him to Egypt, and there he fled and waited until Solomon died. Solomon's dead. Rehoboam's now receiving the kingdom. Jeroboam sneaks back over to Israel. Here's where we are, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. So the people have saying, are saying now to the new king, and they've got Jeroboam with them in the crowd. So that's always a good sign, right? You're about to take the kingdom, and you're, the rebel leader is now in the crowd with these people. Okay, And the people are standing before the king with Rehoboam and Jeroboam all there, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he'd put upon us, and we will serve you. Then he, Rehoboam, said to them, Depart for three days, and then return to me. So the people departed. So despite the great wealth under Solomon, these people had been taxed because Solomon in his uh, apathetic years had been compromising his faith, and he'd been taxing his people heavily to make himself greater and have more and more wealth. 
but it produced peacetime, and there was no war, so the people were really doing well. But at the same time, they were mad about this forced labor thing. They weren't using slaves. They were uh, drafting Israelites to build this stuff, and there was this tension. And so here the people are, and they're saying, King, if, if you will alleviate the burden of your father. No, they never did say it to Solomon. They wouldn't dare do that. But now the new guy's there. He's young. He doesn't know what he's doing. So let's try to change some things. You know how that works. You got a new boss. You're going to try to see if the new boss will let you change some things that the old boss didn't let you do, right? We know that's like. And so that's what they're doing. We're going to try to see so we can get some social reform with this new guy. But what happened, and in their hearts, though, was something that was proving where the kingdom really was. Not only were they trying to get this new social reform, even though they were doing great as a country and never would have brought this up to Solomon, who'd they bring with them? They brought the rebel leader as plan B. In their hearts, and this is one of the sad states of the kingdom, one of the illustrations of where the, the kingdom of God was standing on earth was that in the midst of this people was revolt. Revolt was already in their hearts as, as if they already had decided in their mind, if this doesn't go our way, we're going to take him on. They had already decided in their minds, if this doesn't go our way, we're going to take the kingdom away from the line of David. How sad. How sad is that? That even as they begin to say, we're going to follow you, but only on these conditions. That's always a good setup, right? Hey, boss, you're the boss, right? Your employees come to you. Hey, if you do this, then we'll serve you, right? Well, how about if you want a job, you'll work for, you know what I mean? That's kind of how I would be as the boss, right? But they're already willing to dethrone the Davidic king and the heir of Solomon if they felt it need be. And so self-seeking leads to rebellion, not revival. You write that down. Self-seeking always leads to rebellion, not revival. They thought in their minds, if we got this what we want, things will be really good. This will be better. And they were thinking and hoping in their minds, maybe for some revival, some goodness is going to come out of this, and it's going, the kingdom is going to be better. But because it was with self-seeking, self-seeking always leads to rebellion, never to revival. They weren't praying for their king. Nobody, they weren't seeking what God would want, and they weren't seeking what was best for the people. They thought they were, but because they brought rebellion with them and a rebel leader was in their midst, it shows the sad state of their hearts. So number one, we find out we've got a broken country. This is already the sad state is that we already had a broken country before Rehoboam had ever gotten started. The country was broken, much like we think about our nations today. So then we move on and look at verse 6. We've got an immature leader. Verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father under Solomon while he was still alive saying to these elders, how do you counsel me and answer to these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they'll be your servants forever. But guess what? He forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. This young, immature leader, 41 years old, <coughs> he doesn't listen to his father's buddies who had counseled him for all those many years through peace and prosperity and great wealth. He turns to his friends who he grew up with, no doubt in the richness of the palace, being a spoiled little brat, and he finds his vulgar friends, and if you begin to read the passage, which we're not going to do tonight, 
he says, basically, the friends tell him, well, you just tell them, if you think my father was bad news, if you think my father was all that, you just wait till you get a hold of me, until I get a hold of you. And so they begin to say some vulgar things, and they begin to make some mockery of the people. And so what does he do? He goes along with it. And he turns to the people, and that's what he tells them. He rejects the counsel of the elders and says, basically, if you think my father was tough, wait till you see me. He speaks harshly to the people. But all of this is according to the Lord, which is spoke through the prophet uh, that was talking to Jeroboam years ago, that God would split the kingdom in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 18, verse 2, uh, in a different translation says, Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to hear, they only want to air their own opinions. These are the very words his own father had written to him about when he would rule. Think about it. The entire book of Proverbs was written for one reason, really that Solomon would write the book of Proverbs to teach the son that would come on the throne how to rule and reign and how to be a righteous man of God. So we find here a great fall, a great immaturity, a fool of a young man taking on, uh, forsaking the wisdom that his father left him. And so what happened to the book of Proverbs in this man's life? Let's give me pull, pull out four things to think about, just this few, few verses. Number one, we can think about it this way. Who are your friends? There's a popular saying that says, show me your friends and I'll what? Show you your future, right? You heard this in grade school sometime. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. In some of these cell phone commercials, it says, what's your top five, your, your pick five, your fast five, right? Who's your friends? Who are your friends? Are, are our friends godly friends? Are the people that we surround ourselves with uh, godly men and women uh, who are going to give us good counsel? So he chose his immature friends over the, over the ones that his dad had appointed for him. Number two, he forsook that godly counsel. He could have trusted in the wisdom of his father's elders. He could have even trusted in his father's own words from the book of Proverbs. He could have been studying that book night and day, but he felt the need to make his own name. It was all about becoming his own man and being his own thing. And he sought the counsel which he wished to hear. The Bible says in the last days there'll be those who follow uh, teaching that will itch their ears, that will tickle their ears, and they'll find teachers and pastors and prophets and people who'll find the counsel they want. You'll find this even in, in the church today. There'll be those that'll go to different people in the church looking for the thing that they want to hear back to them, and someone who's going to caress their sin and make it feel okay. And that's what Rehoboam has done. And he didn't inherit his father's wisdom, and his pride was blinding his own ignorance. Number three I can note off of this is that parents, he didn't listen to his father's book. But here's the reason why, I think. Solomon wrote Proverbs early on in his life as a younger king seeking out wisdom and pleasing God. Later on in his life, he began to marry different pagan women, began to build idols across all of Israel, and temples and idolatry entered into the kingdom of God. And he, war came in and uh, we see that he begins to write the book of Ecclesiastes, which he says, everything's meaningless, everything's vain. And you see this great this decline in Solomon's life. What we know from parenting, we hear this a lot, is what? Actions speak louder than words. While his dad had written the book of Proverbs and written all this great wisdom down, what he saw his dad do meant more to him in his life 
than what his dad had written many years ago. And at the end of his life, he saw his dad marry a thousand women. He saw his dad build temples on every high place and neglect the temple of God. And so therefore, Rehoboam fought, sought nothing from his father's early works. He followed his father's example. What a, what a thing for us as parents to say, parents, it's not about just what we speak, it's our actions too. And number four, out of all of that, even if, you know, sometimes we didn't grow up with a Bible in our home, and sometimes we didn't grow up with a mom and dad or godly counsel, and sometimes we don't have any friends who are Christians when we first come to the Lord. But what we know outside of all of that, the number one thing he should have been doing is seeking the Lord himself. He didn't seek the Lord himself. God, what do you want me to do with these people in this situation? Every situation that comes across our desk, every situation that is complicated, that comes into our life, God, what should I do here? God, this sounds like, I don't know, God, if this is a good decision or not. Seek the Lord for yourself. He's, he had not grown up humble. I think about it this way. He had not grown up humble and poor like his grandfather David. He didn't have to fight for anything in his life like David had, but instead he grew up wealthy, it was a time of peace. He noticed the slow compromise of his father. And even more than that, his mother was a pagan. She was an Ammonite, which Solomon had married. So even Rehoboam was a half-Jew. So this kid had no real chance in his life. But all around him, there was the temple of God. There was the book of Proverbs. There was the priesthood. And all of this would point to him and say, you know what? You can call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says that only a fool in his heart says there is no God. The Bible says that even all of nature declares there is a God and that no one has any excuse not to understand that there is a God that we can call upon. Even Abraham was a pagan when he called upon the name of the Lord. He called him El Shaddai, the most high God, the great God of all other gods. So God is always willing to reveal himself to those who would seek him out. And Rehoboam failed in a time of crisis in his life, in a time of insecurity in his life. He thought, I got this. I can handle this. I can make a decision on my own. And it's like when you first get some authority as a young person and you think, I can do this. You know, I can, I can make it on my own, which we all think that, you know, right on. And then you're thinking, oh my gosh, wouldn't it so awesome when I didn't have to pay rent or I didn't have to pay my utility bill. I wish I could just go back and sleep in mom and dad's house, you know. He wanted to make something of himself and neglected to seek the Lord. However you've grown up in your life, seek the Lord first, then seek out godly counsel, and then ensure this, don't seek to build yourself up. Seek God, seek godly counsel, and don't seek to build yourself up. So we've got a broken country, we've got an immature leader, and so what that produces? A divided kingdom. Like I said, you can think about America a lot in this. Broken country, immature leader. Now we've got a divided king. Look in 1 Kings 12, 16. Let's go down a little bit. When all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered to the king and said, What portion do we have in David? Well, what's David got to do with it? Right? This is about Rehoboam, but it's the line of David. What portion do we have in the descendants of David? They would say, We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. O to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. Note there... That in that moment, with self-seeking and rebellion is in the heart of man, they've forsaken all the good that David had done all those years ago. That the legacy of David now in the heart of sin meant nothing. There might be a generation upcoming that says, I don't care what the church has done in the past, I only know what they see them doing now. 
There's sometimes we can't always build upon the legacy. But we want to build upon the legacy. Solomon built upon the legacy of David. Rehoboam should have built on the legacy of Solomon. But when a generation of self-seekers rises up, they don't look to the past. They look to right now. Doesn't matter the credit that our people, our grandfathers and great grandfathers, and the church and the early church had built, and all the things the church has done over the history of the world. They're looking to right now, church. What are we doing? Because they're so blinded by sin and self-seeking, they can't see the past. That should, that, that's off my notes. Anyway, what are we doing right now that reveals the power of the church? All right? So the people were being self-seeking. Everybody was self-seeking. You know, it's been said this, that we are one generation away from revival or collapse. I believe that's true in America today. We are one generation from revival or collapse. And you look at this and exactly where they were at that time. The same was true here. Everyone was seeking their own. Jeroboam was seeking his own kingdom and trying to get the ten tribes. Rehoboam was seeking his own name and how he could build himself up and be independent from his father and his great-grandfather David, make a name for himself, and his friends can do something cool in their life. And the people were seeking what they wanted. They wanted free taxes, lighter load, and they wanted to choose and pick and choose and manipulate the leader. But nobody was thinking about the kingdom of God. Nobody was asking God, God, what do you want? The nation as a whole, nobody was thinking, what does God want in all this? And therefore, the kingdom split. If America splits today in the hearts and lives of families, it's going to be because right this, right here, self-seeking. Self-seeking, probably the most selfish generation we're rising up in the world today uh, is right here in America. Then what happens? The people then kill Rehoboam's tax collector, by the way. So Jeroboam, or Rehoboam then musters 180,000 troops from Benjamin and Judah, and he goes to fight against all these seceding uh, tribes and Jeroboam. But the prophet Shemaiah shows up, and he says, God has told me to tell you, go to your house. Fighting's not the answer. And by the grace of God, they listen, and all the troops go home. What that tells me in this moment is, in a divided kingdom, war does not lead to true reconciliation. You know, we have had a civil war in the United States, and while we could say one side won, it created deep divides in our country. We lost millions of men, and then we're still, even in the news today, apparently recovering from that civil war years and years and years and years ago. So they tell me, right, on the news. Whatever, right? And may, even if one side wins... In a, in a great war, it's going to be at a great price. There's going to be emotional wounds. It's going to last for years. And rarely is ideology completely stamped out by force. Rarely is ideology completely stamped out or changed by force. It comes through the education. It comes through communication. It comes through love, mutual, mutual respect for one another. And that's why we see things like the civil rights movement working much more with the, under the, the leadership of Martin Luther King because it was a, an, a, a spiritual movement. It was a relational movement, a social movement versus uh, something that might have taken on by force. And we look at that and we look at Israel today and God tells Israel, fighting is not the answer. That's not what I'm about. That's not what I want you to do. They go back home. I think about it this way with us in the church today. So many split homes, so many split families, so many split churches. Jesus says you are to be peacemakers. God's will is always reconciliation. 
God's will is always that reconciliation happen in a spirit of unity and peace among the brothers, Scripture says. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. He even said in uh, Matthew 5, 24, that even if we are going to God in prayer, leave your gift, your sacrifice at the altar, then be reconciled to your brother. He even said, even if you're going to go to court with a non-believer, reconcile with them before you even make it to the doorsteps of the courthouse, unless you have to be letting the judge choose the case, right? Let it be upon us. He puts reconciliation back on the job of the church. The world's not called to reconcile. They're, they're sons of the devil. They're, not, they're called to division. But he says, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men, right? And what Scripture says? Y'all with me tonight? Reconciliation is the first priority of a believer because Paul says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, that we are reconciling men unto God. And if we can't reconcile between ourselves, how can we reconcile people to God? If the church stands divided, the world will never respect us enough to think, Hey, maybe you guys are telling the truth. Maybe you guys are uh, working together. If they see us divided, if they see our home, if they see divorce running in our churches as much as they're running in the world, if they see hatred and gossip and slander happening in the church house just as much as they see it on the street corner, if they see churches not able to work together, but businesses that are secular being able to work together, what does that speak of the church? And God says, fighting is not the answer. War and battle is not the answer. Be a peacemaker. So this would have been the option for Rehoboam to call upon the Lord and say, God, I'm praying for a revival in our, in our kingdom. God, I'm praying for unity. Lord, send me prophets and priests. God, help us to grow this nation back together. I'm sorry for the division that's happened, but yet that's not what happens. Look with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1. Now, Kings and Chronicles, if you didn't know this, are the same books, okay? Kings is written before the fall of Israel. Chronicles is written after the fall of Israel. One, they have a little bit different perspectives. Chronicles is often a lot nicer, and it's written in the time where they're trying to bring the nation back together. But both tell the same stories, sometimes a little differently. So we see, instead of finding for revival, we see this downward spiral. 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 1, When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. So here we have this temporary calm. He could have been praying for revival, but he wasn't. What was he doing? Scripture would tell us that he was strengthening himself, putting up walls of defense, preparing for a future battle, even though the Lord just told him, battle is not the answer. So he goes and he takes all, he takes shields and spears and, and more wine and oil and stocks and reserves and puts them all across uh, Judah and Benjamin and begins to build up preparing to make himself better. You know, he just lost 10 tribes. So now he's got to, you got to get puffed up a little bit. You got to make yourself strong. What if they come back? Right? You know, sometimes when we argue with other people and we begin to show division and we begin to split from other people, what do we do? We put up walls. We put up defenses. I don't want this to ever happen again. What if that person attacks me? What if this happens, this conflict happens again? I begin to put a wall between that person. I begin to put emotional boundaries. I begin to put all these things, and I wall myself in. I begin to build myself up. I begin to make myself look better. Have you ever noticed people who are not in a good place in their relationships? They take a lot of selfies on Facebook, just FYI. I'm just saying. They do. They'll go get their makeup done. They'll get that new haircut. They'll get that new wardrobe. They'll be building themselves up, making themselves feel better about... Am I speaking truth? Okay. Woo! Preaching now. (laughs) Glory. 
It's all in the Word. <clears throat> they begin to build themselves up, wall out other people from their life, build themselves up. But the Bible says, guess what? You're preparing for something that God has not ordained you to do. He began to do walls of defense, build himself up in the sight of the Lord, and it actually says he built idols on every hill and under every tree and even introduced prostitution into temple worship. Whoo! That's not idolatry. I don't know what is. Instead of going for a revival, he became a reprobate almost. And so he's, instead of going, going completely the opposite direction, saying, God, I can't fight. You tell me not to fight. You tell me not to build up walls, God. It's only by you and your spirit, Lord, that we can bring this kingdom back together again, my home back together again, my family back together again, my church back together again. But instead, he said, you know what? I'm just going to wall myself in. I'm going to build myself up. And then all that self-seeking just came out in sin. Began to do what he wanted to do. Make himself a better. You know, this pleases me right now. I might as well go enjoy my life because they don't love me anyway or they don't like me anyway. So I'm just going to go do what makes me feel good about myself. Isn't that true? could have used this time to pray and seek God for restoration, for unity. So when we're divided in relationships, do we pray or do we build walls? Do we seek God or do we seek to build ourselves up? Are we praying for a revival in our churches or are we praying to be right? A lot of churches praying to be right. I want to be right in my doctrine, right in my opinion, right in my understanding, right in our church attendance, right in this but how many people are praying for a revival? So we've got this divided kingdom. We've got this immature leader. We find that fighting is not the answer, but he turns to build himself up, which turns into a downward spiral. Trying to build yourself up only brings us down even further. And what happens is pride is plundered. Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, look there. It came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, so it's been five years now, They'd been building themselves up because they had been unfaithful to the Lord that Shishak, don't name your kid that, but Shishak, king of Egypt, by the way, this is the father-in-law of Jeroboam, the rebel leader, okay? You mess with family, it all, blah, you know what I mean? You mess with one, you mess with all, right? Then Shishak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and the people who came with him from Egypt were without number. Verse 4, he captured the fortified cities of Judah, came as far as Jerusalem itself. Then Shemaiah, the prophet, came to Rehoboam. This is the guy that told him not to go to war. And to the princes of Judah, and who'd gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. And they said to him, Thus saith the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I also have forsaken you to this king of Egypt, Shishak. Isn't it ironic he began to build himself up, thinking he was all that. And then in a moment, without opposition, the enemy comes in like a flood. And without even, there had no defense at all. They were just conquered by a sea of people. It was as if a wave just took him out, just washed him, just totally blew him back. When we begin to depend on our own efforts to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us feel pleased and happy and joyful, and we begin to wall other things out of our life, and sin begins to take root, and we can be building and building, just be sure the enemy can come in like a flood, and you'll have no defense. In that moment, despite all of his efforts to build himself up, the enemy just washed right in. The Bible says that God doesn't build his kingdom by our might, 
or by our power, but by what? His Spirit. He doesn't build His kingdom with educated men, intelligent men, gifted men, talented people. He builds it by Spirit-filled, kingdom-focused servants of the Most High God. It's not about us. It's all about Him. So because you've forsaken me, I have forsaken you, is what he says. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 9, So the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. And when they saw the Lord, when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah the prophet, saying, They have humbled themselves, so I, not, I will not destroy them, but I'll grant them some measure of deliverance. Okay, note that, just some measure of it. That my wrath shall not be poured out on, on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Remember, that's God's capital. But they will become his slaves, so they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of men. So Shishak, king, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, took the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's palace. He took everything. He took everything, even the gold shields which Solomon had made. How many know sin has consequences? Sin has consequences. Everything we thought we built up by our own strength can come tumbling down in a moment. He took everything. But they began to humble themselves. When they saw the enemy had rushed in like a flood, and they and basically the enemy had made it all the way up from the bottom of Jerusalem, all the way up from the bottom of Judah. Top of Judah at the corner of Benjamin is the capital city, Jerusalem. They'd made it through the whole country, and the last fortified part where the king was, they saw this sea of men coming, and they began to cry out to the Lord because the prophet said, this is happening because you've forsaken God. Sometimes it's good to tell some people, the reason your life is a mess is because you ain't got Jesus in it. Let's just be honest. It ain't because you did something bad. It ain't be, I mean, that's true. It ain't because you didn't do, build your life like it should. You know, you, you should have invested there, should have invested there. You should have married so-and-so and all that. No, 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 that's just complicated mess. The reason your life is a mess is because Jesus has not been the center of it all, right? He comes to that, they see the flood coming in, so they begin to weep and to cry and to say, Lord, have mercy on us. And God is such a gracious God that even in judgment, the Bible says that mercy triumphs judgment. Here's this wicked, immature, vulgar king who's neglected the things of God, divided God's very house, divided God's very people, and he cries out in one moment, and God says, fine, Satan, no more. You can stop right here. This is as far as I'm going to let you go because he cried out for mercy. Isn't that good? Man, God didn't have to do that. When we mess up over and over again, we cause division, we cause strife, and we do anything in our life, it seems like it's just tumbling, like a tumbleweed running out the door. But in a moment of crying out for mercy, God says, stop. That's as far as it's going because you just called my name. That's a good God. That's a gracious God. So he cries out to God, but guess what? Sin still has consequences. What had happened up until that moment, Rehoboam comes out there, the enemy stops, and it says, hey, we're not going to go any further, but you need to give us everything in the temple, in the treasury, in the king's house, and everything his daddy had built up in that place, all the gold, all the treasures, all the years of peace, and all the years of trade, and everything that built his dad up was gone in a moment. You know, sin's like that. We can work and work and work, but we, you know, I've seen people who've gotten onto drugs and written those hot checks, and in a moment their family's gone, their house is gone, their car is gone. It's like overnight there was just a radical change because sin got a hold of them. Their life turned upside down and they lost it all. 
Sin may build us up, but it leaves us feeling empty. That's good right there. Sin may build you up, but it will leave you feeling empty. And that's what it did to Rehoboam. His house was empty. His temple was empty. His wife's house was empty. Every storehouse was empty, but his life was spared. Our job, hopefully, is that we won't have to go through those trials and processes. God will still save your life, but you may still lose everything if we play around with sin. And that's a good lesson for our young people to learn. We, you can, God might save your soul, but it might take you losing everything for Him to get a hold of you. But God is willing to let you lose everything if it means saving your eternal soul. Praise God for that. Because sometimes I need to lose everything. So I had a youth pastor of mine, a friend of mine. He says, you've got to get to the end of your rope before you'll grab his hope. You've got to get to the end of your rope before you'll grab his hope. What a national disaster that it happened. Again, here would have been another good time to pray for revival. Would have been another good time when God allowed everything to be taken and all we have left is God. We can, our spirit can just cry out to Him unencumbered and our spirit would just say, God, Lord, forgive me what I've done. But the Bible says that Rehoboam did not set his heart to seek the Lord. How amazing how blinding sin is. Now look at this last part before we go to prayer. 1 Kings 14, verse 27. Go back there with me. 1 Kings 14, verse 27. When we feel like we've lost everything, and we feel like our holiness is gone, our spirituality is gone, we feel like we've got to the end of that place, we can either turn to God, or we can turn to imitation. In that moment, his, one of the prized possessions that his dad had made with his gold shields they would go out and kind of go with the king as he entered into the temple. They'd go back to the treasury room. These prized gold shields, they were very famous. And the soldiers would take them and they would just kind of follow the king, his bodyguards, right? Well, they stole them all. So Rehoboam takes, these, takes this moment. and So it says in verse 27, So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded them in the doorway of the king's house. And as often as the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards would carry them with him and then bring them back to the guards' room. Two things there, really. Number one, he had no money. He had nothing left of real value, so he had to make them with a bronze, which is cheaper. And bronze might look like gold to a degree, but it's an imitation, right? It's not the real deal. And you can get that nice diamond ring, and then you can get that cubic zirconium, and they might look the same, but you know... He or she can't afford that, right? And that's how you know, right? They're wearing something way too big for them. All right? In this moment, he replaces something as a holy imitation. It wasn't the real deal. It was fake. It was a knockoff. It was imitation. And even then, he didn't even put it back where it was. He was so worried about losing the imitation, he put it back in the guardhouse. There's a lot of imitating going on in the church of Jesus Christ in America today. I think about what the early church had. Man, power to break down strongholds. Power to cast out demons. See the lame walk. Man, when they had church, the building shook. And I look and go up in my childhood of all the good churches I've been to, and I wonder, is this gold or is this bronze? We come to church, is the power of God here? Or is it imitation? Is it kind of there? That's good. 
is like gold. And then we get so worried that it ain't the real thing, we put it in the guardhouse because we think, well, maybe somebody's going to find out this ain't the real deal, and we're going to only bring it out on special occasions. You know what? There's no substitute for holiness. There's no substitute for the presence of God. There's no substitute for true revival when hearts repent and return and seek the Lord. And Rehoboam couldn't replace the gold, and all he had was cheap imitation bronze. And when sin has broken our lives, when it's destroyed our families, when it's split our churches, the only thing that's going to bring the presence of God back is turning to Him in repentance, crying out for restoration, saying, God, we will not go for an imitation. God, we want the true holiness in this place. We want true revival in this place. We don't want to just a feel-good service. We don't want to just have a five, ten-minute prayer meeting. We don't want to just go through the motions and just have 10 or 15 youth in our church. God, we want to have the whole school emptied out because that's true revival. And we pray for weak things today in the Church of America. You know that? Oh, God, give us one or two salvations here and there. Give us a couple baptisms a year. But, God, what if we just emptied every bar? We emptied every house on Sunday mornings that all the churches be full. Can we pray for some prayers like that shook the nations of Rome, that 120 people went and in just a few decades conquered the known world for Jesus? And many of them died for it because they had the real deal. I don't want a holy imitation. I don't want to knock off revival. I want the real presence of God. And I want to do what it takes to get to that place. And maybe I'm not truly ready for that in myself. You can say it, but what does it mean to truly say, God, if it means me praying hours a day, God, if it means me fasting, Lord, if it means me turning off the television, God, if it means me being in the church house more, if it means me going to here or giving all my money to the poor, God, whatever it takes, do I long for the true revival of the church of America? Do I long for people to be just basking in the presence of God that the lost would come in at unprecedented numbers and believe that God still wants to see revival in America? Has the enemy robbed the church of true holiness and power? And like what Paul said to Timothy, do we have a form of holiness but deny the power of God? I want us to pray about these few questions real quick and we're come to worship. Number one, is there any rebellion in our hearts? Is there any self-seeking that is dividing and destroying either my own life, my marriage, my family, or my church? Is there any self-seeking that might destroy my life, my marriage, my family, or my church? That's number one. Number two, are we determined to seek the wisdom and counsel of God? And number three, are we determined to build up His kingdom and set His kingdom first? God always responds, church, to repentant hearts. No matter how far we've gone, no matter how weak maybe the church has become in America today, God is always willing to say to the enemy, stop, no further. It's time to come back to the presence of God.